This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to change gears and spend the rest of the hour talking about an aspect of life that so many of us have seen dramatic change in for nearly a year now, and that is the idea of working remotely. We used to all go to offices together to work, and I still come here to the studio each morning and uh, do the show with uh, other people who work here. But I spend the rest of the day by myself, just like many of you do doing my work. It feels like ancient history to think of the time when we all used to work in offices. And I think there's a real question about how all of us are adapting to that. There's a lot of people who like the idea of not having to come to an office. They're more productive. They're more focused if they're by themselves. But I also know a lot of people who desperately miss the human interaction of the office space. People who really need that human contact all the time. Derek Thompson is a staff writer for The Atlantic, and he's just written a new piece on this issue about what will come from the end of COVID-19 and the end of the pandemic and the future of work, the current state of work and the future of remote work. Derek Thompson, welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So near the beginning of this piece, you note that for the millions of us who are lugging our computers to the living room every day to work from our couch for eight hours, we might not be thinking that we're starting this next industrial revolution. But you argue that just maybe we are. What makes you think that we might be on the verge of a permanent evolution in the way that we work? I think the best way to think about this is by comparing remote work technology to the telephone. So I think it's very easy for people to say, well, look, I wasn't working remotely in 2019. Uh, I had to work remotely in 2020 and early 2021. Uh, And in the rest of the year, in 2022, hopefully after this pandemic is totally in our past, I'm just going to go back to the office again the same way I did in 2019 when when we had the exact same suite of technology, right? Skype existed, Zoom existed. Well, I would compare that a little bit to the telephone. So the telephone is invented uh, by various people, including Graham Bell in the 1860s. uh, But even 80 years later, in the 1940s, fewer than half of Americans owned a telephone. And the reason why it took so long for the telephone to take off is because of a kind of coordination problem. Uh, People who maybe lived in the suburbs or in the farms, more like in the 1920s and 30s, were thinking, well, why would I get a telephone if I don't know if anyone in my social network has one? And then suddenly, when a lot of people had telephones, suddenly the technology became much more valuable. This is sometimes known as Metcalfe's Law in network theory, that the value of a technology rises disproportionately as more people get access to it if it's a communications technology. And so I think that's what's going to happen with remote work. The most important thing that happened in the last year isn't that you learned how to Zoom. It's that everyone around you learned how to Zoom. And going forward, you'll never be able to say, well, I'm not sure 
if anyone else at my company, if you work at a white-collar company, knows how to use this telecommunications, knows how to use this remote work technology? Well, of course they do. We all had to use it for a year plus because of this pandemic. <laughs> and because we were all forced to engage in, participate in this remote work experiment at the exact same time, we've all let, leapfrogged over the coordination problem that took the telephone 80 years to solve. We solved it in 12 months. Um, And for that reason, I think remote work will remain with us, at least to a certain extent. And I just want to say before we go on with the interview that I think a lot of people always ask me, well, you're saying everyone's going to work remotely. No, absolutely not. I'm saying maybe 10% of the people who are working remotely right now will continue to do so. But that 10% is a huge deal. In 2015, only 10% of the retail industry was e-commerce. But that 10% tail wagged the entire dog of retail. Whenever you talked about the future of retail in, say, 2015, you were always talking about its implication vis-a-vis the Internet. The same thing's going to happen with remote work, I think. A minority of people working remotely will still have a disproportionate impact in the way that we talk about the future of work going forward. So I, I want to talk more about the technology and the kind of workspace aspect of this, but but for a minute, I I want to talk about the social aspect of this and and the way in which remote work is changing us socially. In the open, I was talking about these reactions that we have. Some people who really thrive on this idea of not having to go to an office, not having to interact with other people in in a physical space. Uh, all day. And, and the flip side of that, which is people who desperately need that contact and really thrive off of that interaction. Um, what does the, the, the permanence uh, of, or at least the immediate permanence of remote work mean to us as, as, as human beings? And, and how do we start to sort of, I guess, think through the social implications of, of this in a way that that helps people on both sides of that uh, that equation be more comfortable with it. I think it's a fantastic question. You know, I think that for a lot of people, work is the last community standing. Um, religion is in decline. Uh, the bowling leagues that Putnam uh, talked <laughs> about are in decline. All sorts of associations and uh, communities are in decline. And for a lot of people. You know, if community is, the, is where you keep showing up, work was where people kept showing up. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's really important to think about, you know, if, if people are working from home, how is the fact of workplace community replaced? I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think one possibility is that it's replaced uh, by, uh, you know, many people you know, remaining in the suburbs or exurbs or really remaining in cities working from home and simply you know, being more social outside of work. Maybe they just, they join more book clubs and they join more kickball leagues and uh, they pay closer attention to their family. In fact, they can stay with their family for more hours throughout the day uh, in large part because they aren't commuting for an hour or two hours uh, every weekday. So there are ways for work and its sort of community and social benefits to be replaced, um, maybe even improved on by people seeking out other communities around them. But I agree that this is a tension that exists within the future that I'm predicting, Uh, that, you know, the fact that I think that remote work is going to increase doesn't mean that I think that 
that trend will be purely good for the people who engage in it. I think that they that there might be tensions uh, that exist among people who work remotely. And an important one to consider is the fact that a lot of them might be cut off from one of the more important remaining sources of community uh, for a lot of white-collar workers today. Hmm. I'm talking with Derek Thompson, a staff writer at The Atlantic, whose latest piece is about the implications of working remotely. It is called Superstar Cities are in trouble. Uh, We would love to hear from you about remote work. How's it going, this idea of not going into the office every day, of working at home uh, by yourself in some cases, or maybe with other family members working around you or your children being there in school? Uh, Are you hoping to continue that? Is that something that you feel like is kind of a positive development from Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, uh, give us an idea of how that's changed maybe your work-life balance. Does that look different because you're home all day uh, and working there? Uh, Also, give us a call and let us know if this is something you're just not comfortable with, if this is something that that you wish would go away and that you could go back to work Uh, full-time in a physical space. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and uh, hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. I especially want to hear from folks who are really really struggling with this. Uh, I think there are more of you out there then we know people who really have not been able to adapt uh, socially to the idea of the withdrawal from the physical space uh, uh, of work. We'd love to hear how you're coping with that and whether you anticipate uh, that your workplace will go back to um, will go back to to regular physical uh, workspace. Uh, anytime soon. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Ben in Rochester Hills. Ben, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Um, th- this topic is just hitting it on uh, in the fields from here right now. Uh, I, we've been remote working since this began, and our work is like software, so it's real easy to do. But um, it's been like a huge strain on my relationship because, you know, I spend the whole day in front of a computer with, you know, we have lots of, some days we have a good amount of meetings or something, but it's just, it's not the same social interaction. Uh, It's, it's, uh, and then, you know, my girlfriend gets home and she's been spending the whole day out being, you know, working, still having to deal with people, um, being kind of an essential worker and, Hmm. You know, just it's uh, not coping well. I think would be the uh, the you know main thing. But and so so Ben, tell me about what you anticipate for the future, uh, and and both in terms of how to cope with what's going on in a, maybe a better way, but also maybe anticipating going back to something something different. How possible? Uh, is that going to be for you? Um, they've said, at, at least where I work and the work that I'm currently doing, is they say that you know there will still be a lot of working from home, kind of forever. But I think there is a there's definite examples where you know we and management and everyone kind of sees that 
a lot of stuff kind of gets missed not being, you know, in an office working together. Like, you know, last week there was an issue that came up that, you know, was going on for weeks. Somebody didn't understand what was going on for weeks and it could have been resolved in, you know, a 15 minute meeting <laughs> or something. If we were all just sitting in the same room talking about it. Uh, ben, I really, really appreciate the the call and, and your perspective. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, Derek Thompson, react to what uh, to what Ben's talking about there. I feel like I talk to a lot of people who are in Ben's place on, on, on all of this, that they're just really struggling with, with the differences. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's a really interesting perspective. Um, I know a lot of people who feel the exact same way. Uh, they feel incredibly stressed uh, by the fact that they can't leave their house effectively. Uh, they're afraid of the pandemic. And I do think it's important to point out that some of those fears are being conflated with the natural experience of remote work. And that in a post-pandemic economy, you're not going to have the intersection of a work-from-home experience um, and a health crisis. If you want to go to the library, if you want to go to a coffee shop to work for a little bit, that's okay. That's very easy to do. Um, and so some of the aspects of remote work right now just aren't a picture of the future of remote work. They're mm. a picture of life in the middle of a pandemic. The other thing I would say, I think, is that, you know, the, the experience of people are so different. You know, there are introverts and there are extroverts and there's people in the middle. And there are people who need silence to focus, and there are people who like working around sort of buzzy noise. Uh, people are so, so different. And the pre-pandemic sort of typical work experience didn't work for everyone either. And so that's why I'm holding on to this prediction that it's not that remote work is going to take over the economy, but rather that it might just take hold of just 10% of the white-collar workforce. Um, that means that 90% of uh, the people listening to this call um, are probably going to go back into the office for some period of time, at least on a hybrid basis, a kind of you know three days on, two days off, uh, plus weekend experience. Um, so you know, I, I'm, I'm offering a lot of different answers to the, to the question because I think it's, a, it's, a, it's such an important question. But I guess I would just like to point out that even in my prediction, the vast majority of people are going to go back to a world that is pretty normal, mm. but that minority of people uh, that will continue to work remotely could have a pretty big impact in the future of work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take another quick break and we come back. We're going to continue this conversation with Derek Thompson of The Atlantic about the future of work. We're going to talk a little about what this means for cities in particular. We've got uh, some Twitter comments and uh, others about that. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Derek Thompson. He's a staff writer with The Atlantic, and his latest piece is about the implications of working remotely. It's titled, Superstar Cities Are in Trouble. We want to hear from you about how you're coping with remote work. Is this something that has you maybe doing your best work in in many years uh, because you're no longer burdened by the distractions of physical office space and other people and the commute back and forth? Uh, Or are you somebody who's really struggling because those things, the commute, the interaction with other coworkers, is what you thrive off of and is part of what makes your work uh, as good as it normally is. Uh, 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to get you into the conversation uh, that way. Derek, before we get back to callers, uh, I want to talk about cities and the implications for them. Uh, the, the the title of your piece is Superstar Cities uh, Are in Trouble. Tell us Tell us why that's true. So I think it's important uh, to look at this issue, this problem at the macroeconomic level that we've had for the last few decades, and that is that the American dream has splintered. If you define the American dream as the ability for middle class and lower middle class people to move somewhere, work really hard, and then get ahead, uh, well, the phenomenon of that has splintered into two different places. In rich high-density cities like New York and San Francisco, uh, you have fantastic upward mobility, but housing is often too expensive for people to uh, live there if they're working with a middle-class or lower-middle-class salary. On the other hand, cities that are more affordable often tend to have low social mobility. What would be really, really good is for housing values to fall a little bit in these sort of coastal super cities so that more people can move there. And I think that that is one thing that seems to be happening in this pandemic and that may very well last beyond the pandemic, which is that remote work may allow, you know, established people at white collar companies to move somewhere else with their families and still keep their jobs in those cities. What that does is that frees up a little bit of housing for immigrants or college graduates or other middle class people to move into those apartments. Um, and live there for a bit and enjoy the fantastic benefits of rich, productive cities. Um, So I think that what this could do is reduce the price level of these sort of coastal super cities uh, in a way that will be a little bit like a forest fire effect, that it will hurt these cities in the short term. You know, imagine the the forest being burned. But then after the forest burns, of course, there's riotous growth, sometimes more diverse than the growth that preexisted the fire. And I think you could see that happen um, in the medium term. So for now, in the next, say, 12 months, I do think that these superstar cities are in trouble. But in the longer run, I'm an optimist that the forces that we're seeing are going to work out just fine uh, for a lot of these you know, large cities on the coast. Mm. So we have a Twitter question specifically about cities. Neo on Twitter says cities that have an income tax are looking to still collect that tax from workers who are working at home outside of the city because their employers happen to be in the city. Uh, so even though those workers are no longer working in the city, they still want the income tax. How is that legal? I think this is one of the kinds of questions that is going to come up 
uh, as we get into this, uh, that that is directly related to the point you're making about cities maybe having to change uh, change their financial structure uh, because of this. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the truth is, I don't really have great answers to it right now. I mean, uh, you know, at the moment, um, you uh, you have a situation where the vast majority of people who work at a city, who excuse me, work at a company in New York City, live in New York City, right? That that is sort of the the foundational logic of urban economics, which is that uh, you know people live where they work, and as a result, productive, you know, rich companies tend to be concentrated in cities where richer people tend to live. What I think is so fascinating about, you know, this evolution of remote work is that you could sort of loosen that leash between work and home so that people who live, you know, in, excuse me, who work in New York City or Washington, D.C. could move an hour outside the city, move two hours outside the city, you know, maybe drive or commute into uh, their office once every two weeks or so, mm-hmm. um, or they can move to an entirely different state and continue to work at that company because they're keeping in touch via Zoom and Skype and Slack and Gchat and emails. So how that shakes out in terms of tax law is one of these questions that, to be really honest with you, I haven't begun to report out. I don't know how cities, excuse me, how states are beginning to look at this. I can imagine it going two ways. On the one hand, you know, you don't want to to lose money um, if you, you know, if if people are moving to a place like Wyoming but continuing to work in in New York. But these states like Wyoming and Florida and Texas that currently have no income tax recognize that that's a really important reason why people are moving to those states. Um, so they might not necessarily want to drive up income taxes or to raise income taxes and create state income taxes uh, in, in a way that would discourage um, uh, people who can move to those places from moving there. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Ben in Toledo. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, my situation has never been better. <laughs> this is, I'm actually living the dream. Back in 2015, I was noticing, and I'm a, I should explain real quickly that I'm a, a graduate student, but I, I also teach computer, computer animation. Um, and in 2015, I was predicting that we wouldn't be, we would be, at some point, we would be uh, doing much more remote teaching. And I had no idea about COVID. It was more uh, just industry, like brick and mortar was, schools are having a hard time just to find their tuition. Mm-hmm. And then COVID happens. And um, I'm right now, I'm teaching for, I'm, I live in Toledo, but I teach for uh, college in Detroit, uh, University in Missouri, and uh, community college in Iowa. So um, it's, it's, I mean, I don't have to dress up, you know, in my professional <laughs> attire. <laughs> right. I, I don't have to commute. It's great. So yeah, this is a really good situation for um computer animators, not only not only instruction, but also in the industry, um, remote animation is, is more and more common. Right, right. Wow, uh, that's really interesting. Derek Thompson, react to what Ben's talking about here. I mean, Ben, the, the two callers that we've had are such a great example of, of the two different kinds of work experiences that I often focus on in my writing. You know, Ben is talking, uh, Ben is a part of the 10% that I'm describing. Someone who thrillingly enjoys being able to live in Ohio, but work in Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the remote work future uh, that I envision, which is lots of people who work in software or media, PR, 
tech-adjacent industries, recognizing that this tether between work and home, which has existed for thousands of years, simply doesn't have to exist in a future where everyone knows how to use the tools of telecommunications. At the same time, I think it's important to balance these stories with what I've already called the 90%. Lots of people who love the sociality of offices, mm. who feel uncomfortable living hundreds of miles or, you know, I guess in this case, you know, maybe 100 miles or so away uh, from where their work is based. Um, and that you could sort of imagine a, uh, a second, a category that exists between these two extremes, right? Extreme number one, remote work future. You know, work in Detroit, live in Central California. Uh, remote. Uh, the other few, the other uh, extreme is people who snap back after this pandemic is over and go back to the office five days a week, eight hours a day. Mm. There's a middle solution, and that's what I call in this piece the rise of the super commuter. And that's someone who says, you know, look, I like the office. But I don't want to be there every single day. I love the idea of being able to wake up 30 minutes late, make myself sort of a, a nice cup of coffee, do a crossword puzzle, uh, and sit down to work at my kitchen table at 9.30 and sort of keep that those hours for myself, for my wife, my husband, my kids. So for them, they might decide to move, you know, say 60 miles outside of their city center, 60 miles away from where they work, live there, and then only commute into work once a week or, you know, once, you know four or five times a month. For them, for these super commuters driving, say, an hour and a half uh, to work, but only driving to work once a week, this might be another option opened up and popularized by the remote work revolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a Facebook comment from Stephen who says his son works in Silicon Valley, and for the first time ever, they have lowered his rent. His building is rapidly clearing out, and the landlord is struggling to keep tenants. I think that's a one of the dynamics that we're seeing about cities, overcrowded, expensive cities that are going to look a little different and feel a little different uh, after after all of this is over. Uh, Julie on Twitter says uh, she worked from home a few days a week before COVID and now is 100% work from home. She's glad people are starting to see the benefits, but she does miss seeing her coworkers. She gets much more done, though, when she is working uh, at home. Uh, let's go to Bernadette quickly here in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the Hi, show. Steven. Hey, um, The thing that, um, there are many things that I hated about working, but now that I'm retired, I see that the benefit was, in going to the office was expanding my friendship circle. Now that everybody is over 60, the chances for me meeting new people with things in common, even if it's just gossip, are quite limited. So by not going to the office and not going to a church and not going to the Y, who are going to be my friends? Just YouTubers? <laughs> right. Uh, that's a, it's a great question, and I, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that, Derek Thompson. That's what you're saying is we don't know. We don't know the answers to all of these questions. We don't know the answers. That's certainly true. I also think it's important to point out there's probably age differences in terms of the applicability of my analysis, uh, which is to say that, you know, I think a lot of young people probably want to go to an office. You know, these are people who, in many cases, have been in college for two or four years. Sure. Uh, they uh, are used to being around lots of other young people, and they want to be around lots of other young people when they're working. And so in that case, you could see offices open up. Um, and young people realizing that not only for the social reasons, but also for the career-based reasons, that they should probably go uh, into the office. 
on the other hand, you know, I think you could imagine a lot of established parents, uh, parents of young kids, parents of older kids saying, well, look, I'm, I'm entrenched in my company. I like where I am. My boss likes me. I don't need to show my face every single day in the office to be valued. Maybe I don't need to live 5, 10, 15 minutes away from the office. Maybe I could live an hour away, 90 minutes away, come into the office, say, once a week for that all-important meeting, but basically spend the rest of my time you know, working at my kitchen table or at a WeWork or something else like that. I think that that, is, uh, that, that that helps to show you like the range of options here and how those options might be stratified by age. And I'm not predicting that any one age group is going to decide 100% to do one thing or the other. Right? That is a part of my prediction, which is that even if only a handful of these people uh, decide to work remotely, it would still really change urban economics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Derek Thompson, staff writer with The Atlantic. Always great to talk with you here on Detroit Today. Really wonderful to talk to you about this great piece that you've written. Thanks very much for joining us. You got it. Thank you. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with Wayne State University professor and historian Kadada Williams about her new podcast, Seizing Freedom, which delves into the story of how black Americans risk their lives to fight for their own visions of what freedom could be during slavery and Reconstruction. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.